Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, where your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak, help you go next level with your practice, leveraging the four pillars that make a practice bulletproof. Vision, building a dream team, marketing ninja, and financial freedom. Now, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Today, Craig and I are in a, in a feisty mood, and Reese Harper is our guest. Reese has, a, uh, Reese has his own podcast, and many of you all know of him in the airways. I've been a fan of his podcast. Reese, I've listened to a lot of your stuff. Reese, you basically run a financial, financial uh, firm, an advert, uh, advice firm for, for dentists, right? So like you were saying, we got on, you are a, a, a fee-based fiduciary. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. I'm a huge fan of you and Craig's banter. I think you why, guys- Why like, does everyone say, talk about yeah. this banter? I, I want to know more about this. Sorry to uh, interject. I can probably relate. I relate to it well because I feel like me and my co-host, uh, Sir Ryan Isaac, we just kind of like have a similar vibe where- Wait, you, you co-host your podcast with a knight? He's a, we, I knighted him. Oh, it's, okay. I, Craig, you I, I want to be so no, no, I asked first. It was on the. It was the first show, and uh, I just wanted to knight him, and so that's what we did. And now he's. I think it might be offensive to people that live in England, because it's not a formal knighting, but it was what I chose to do in the first episode. So I just think wow. our, it's important to me that we keep with keep his title going. That's but anyway, awesome. so he, me, and him have a similar dynamic where we don't mind. I guess, challenging each other's ideas. We have a lot of fun with it and we're really just direct and candid and simple speak. I think you guys, you guys do a really great job of creating an exception. Well, no, what we do the best is make fun of each other um, and people get uncomfortable and they think that's your yin and yang. But like, I make fun of, I make fun of all my buddies. That's right. Like, I feel like that's the, I feel like that's, that's your the guy, love. That's, that's the guy you, code. That's the guy code. If I love you, I'm going to, I'm going to make you feel horrible about yourself. <laughs> That so, is what banter means, by the way. It's a noun, the playful and friendly exchange of teasing remarks. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's, well, yeah, anyway, sorry that. to interject, but everyone oh, always fuck. talks about, talk, talks about like, hey, I love y'all's banter and y'all's uh, thing. And I'm like, wait, it's just, it's just how we are. But anyway. That's cool. Reason. Glad well, to you have said you. A, I'm, you said a, I'm a fee-based fiduciary or financial advisor. And I, I just wanted to clarify that. In my mind, there's a big difference between fee-only and fee based. Okay. Big difference. Right. But so yeah, it's okay, but it's just an important word for us. Well, yes. clarify. Financial planning clarify. People. clarify. So like uh, there's a commission based broker or financial planner that gets paid when he sells you stuff. A product. Yep. Like, like life whole life insurance. Yep. Like a whole life policy. And like maybe someone we had in the podcast. I don't know. I'm just saying, I don't know. Oh, this guy's been duped before. I'm not, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but <laughs> You know, there's a lot of like bad advice out there. And I would say bad financial advice comes from product sales, people who get paid commissions and good advice generally comes from people who get paid for their time or some amount of a fixed fee for their service or an hourly rate. Or I even think a, a percentage against an investment account, as long as it's not uh, triggered by something that you buy or sell. Um, I'm fine with that. I think there's reasons to charge a fee that way for some clients, but a fee that's transparent, that's disclosed to you in advance of them getting paid, that's very, very important. And then a commission that is not disclosed to you, to me, is like 
the most unethical way to deliver financial advice in the world. Hallelujah, Reese. Sorry, hallelujah. I've had a lot of pent-up angst about this, so I love what you just said. Let that sink in for all the listeners, just what you yeah. just said. And I, 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 the second thing I'd like to say is if your financial advisor is unwilling to do the hard thing and actually get paid for advice through a fee, then he needs to do some soul searching and change his business model because it's not easy for any of us to, to operate this way. And it's easier to sell products and get paid a commission. It's more profitable. It's, but it doesn't encourage literacy among financial planners. It just encourages sales behavior and they learn how to sell things. They never learn the first thing about financial advice. They just learn how to sell and it's just encouraging people to become dumber as time passes. And, and by the way, when you sell that product, you're, you've got the salesperson, the broker in this case, gets an annuity of a return. So like you, for example, if, if someone, I'm, I'm presuming since you're fee-based, if someone works with you for five years and you're six says, you know, Reese, I'm gonna take all my money and stick it under my mattress, you don't make any more money. Whereas the person who sold you that product into perpetuity, they can get a commission structure on that, correct? Yes, I think there's a, there's a big difference though between fee-based and fee-only. A lot of people say, uh, and we keep, I, I know I'm parsing words here, but um, just to clarify, a lot of financial advisors say I'm fee-based and then people assume that means they're fee-only. Fee-only and fee-based right. means you're living in both worlds. You're like, sometimes I'm going to charge you a fee and sometimes I might get paid on a commission. And by the way, that's called duly registered. So yes. you can be, uh, you know, uh, one thing, my claim to fame is Tony Robbins wrote that book, Unshakable, which yeah. is the Financial Freedom Playbook. And he's, Tony is a massive fan of what you just said. And he's beating yeah. the drum on anybody who will listen about this disruption that's going on in the financial world that has to be transparent. And there's a massive disintermediation going on globally with all different things. Like people, you know, they're, they're, people are re not really keen on any type of kickbacks anymore. But the problem yeah. is, and the cryptic thing is that people can be duly licensed. So you could be a fiduciary, a registered independent advisor, but also have your broker dealer license too. So you could wear both hats. Is that correct, Reese? Yeah, the, you, you, there's what's called a registered investment advisor, which is this entity that you can own or be employed by that charges fees only. And then there's a broker dealer that you can be affiliated with that gets paid commissions that they pass along to you. And you could have a dual registration where you're a part of a registered investment advisor and you're part of a broker dealer. And depending on the client, you can decide what you want to sell or push or interact with. And, and I just think that that also is really uh, unethical because it makes the financial advisor have an impossible task and it makes the client always get put in a tough situation. I'm not saying everyone who's commission-based is bad and I'm not saying everyone who's fee-based is bad. I'm just saying everyone who's commission-based has a strong conflict of interest and people who are fee-based have a conflict of interest trying to decide how much should I sell for commission? How much should I charge in a fee? And the broker dealers are way more profitable than the registered investment advisors. They make a lot more money. So, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, what do the financial advisors learn about? Well, whatever the broker dealer wants to teach them when they go to conferences, they, they tell you about 
how you can make this trip to Hawaii if you do these three things. And every, they, they spend a lot of time educating you on financial products kind of in a way that to them, they're trying to do it in an objective way that feels like they're not being manipulative, but they know where they make their money. The parent organizations do. And so the financial advisors get continuing education around stuff that's also the most profitable thing to distribute through the broker dealer. So it could be a mutual fund lineup. It could be an annuity lineup. It could be a, a, an insurance product or an insurance carrier that they have a special relationship with. It's just messy folks. So your financial advisor should be a registered investment advisor and an independent fee only fiduciary and nothing else. And if and, he is and anything- find out and in summation, I'm saying like, find out because you'll learn the hard way. Like yeah. I had to recently. And I do um, too. And, and it's the quality of your question. So imagine their dentist colleague saying, are you a fee only do you know are you do you have an ri are you a registered independent advisor that guy who also maintains a broker dealer license who can sell you commission products doesn't have to lie and say yes i am so if the dentist asks are you a registered independent advisor he could say yes and the dentist thinks he's clear but then he goes and sells you a really highly commissioned product because he also has a dual registration i mean how is this stuff not illegal i mean it's crazy you know it's crazy that it's legal and, and it's it, dentistry. Dentist, we always talk about. These talked about this on the last podcast. Dentists are like it's the worst industry because we just get preyed upon on this kind of stuff. Because we're trusting. I mean, how yeah. do we feel as dentists when we're like, Mrs. Jones, you need a crown number thirty, and they're like, you know, I really want to get a second opinion. We're offended because we're recommending what's ethically, morally mm. right. So we just yeah. imagine that's the that those are the tint of the color of the glasses we look at life through. So we just figure that other people would have the same thing. But it's kind of interesting because I've been a big, uh, I've been preyed upon this as well. I was a part of a large dental practice management company. I was like their poster boy, poster boy for this company. And this company has an affiliated financial arm as well. And everybody in the financial arm just has tons of whole life insurance, tons yeah. of it, all of them. <laughs> and the funny thing is the first meeting you get taken out to the most amazing restaurants and all the whining and dining that happens when you're dealing with a fiduciary, they can't take you out. It's a they, they can't, if they're going to pay for it, isn't there a law that binds you to not spend money on a client? It, it, you have very low limits on what you can spend on a client. And you know, it, and it's, it's just, it's de minimis. Like you, you can take people to dinner. Um, but it, it, it's capped um, per client per year. Okay, so, so if your broker, CF, CFP, financial planner, whatever they call themselves, because there's literally 100 names for it, if they're taking you to floor seats at the Oakland Warriors and uh, dinner at Nobu um, on your first meeting because they think you're a really cool guy, it's time to, time to get up some, uh, set off some red flags. I think. No, you paid for those. You just don't know yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> You're about to. Well, the, okay. the funny thing is, is I got double sold. So I, I got all this whole life insurance and I don't want to capitalize it, but I think I want people to hear this story. So I had all this whole life insurance through Guardian, right? And then a very, very affluent friend of mine is like, you've got to meet my broker, my, my, my financial planner. So this guy then proceeds to tell me like, oh, you know what? Your policy is not that great. 
It, whole life is awesome, but Guardian is not a great one. New York Mutual or New York Mass Mutual is a yeah. better one. Uh -huh. So this guy was going to do a 1031 or 1035 exchange. I don't know what you call it. And resell me another whole life policy, resetting the commissions for me. Yep, that's common. So, it's sad, man. So literally, he's like, you, you got the wrong policy, but we'll take your $200,000 of cash value and we'll move it into Mass Mutual and it'll be great. And he was so adamant he, and, and, and the dinner at Nobu and I really like you. I want to get to know you. And why don't we go? I have four seats at the uh, Miami Heat. Why don't we do that? And some like little red flag went off and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not that cool. I don't need to be uh, on the first time you meet me, take me out for a seven or a thousand or a $1,000 night. Yeah. And that's got to yeah, throw some red flags. It, it's you're smart for acknowledging that Craig and, I think, I think in the dental industry, if you think about it, like imagine you worked for a DSO, all right? Imagine you worked for a big DSO and that if, this would be like the worst DSO in the world, okay? But this is the equivalent analogy of financial planning industry. Imagine that, they, that if you go and work for this DSO that amalgam fillings from company like ABC pays you 58% of production, okay? but amalgam fillings from company XYZ only pays 48% of production. Still a pretty aggressive split given like the normal range of what doctor's production should be, but ABC pays, you know, more than XYZ. So, but if you go with composite, you might earn more or less depending on like which uh, dental supply manufacturer you go with. The yep. patient never pays the dentist a fee ever. The dentist just gets paid through the supply companies for procedures and that that's the same with any kind of treatment and then well, there's a that was made illegal a, by the way that was what the drug companies were doing in medicine yeah, drug yeah it, but, it illegal but imagine it gets worse though because this dso has a proprietary line right they have a proprietary line too and if you use that line that's the only line that you get that helps you qualify for your health insurance and an annual trip so if you do enough of the proprietary line, you get that kind of special treatment plus a bonus and a retirement plan contribution. That's exactly what's happening in the financial services industry. And it's like the customer does not know what he's paying. These splits are all product dependent and the DSO ultimately determines like how much is getting paid down to the financial planner. And you're not privy to find out. And you can't what? find out because the broker honestly doesn't even really know either yeah. because he's got this convoluted pay stub and it's like, they'll translate it kind of like, like they do timeshare stuff where it's like points or you yep. get these kind of credits for this kind of a sale. And it's messy. It's just, it's going away. I mean, firms like mine, like nine times out, it's not like we, if we're in competition, we will never lose to that case. Cause it's like, it's just the worst model in the world. Yeah, but in full disclosure, Reese, you only need to do, they only need to do 5% of the volume you do. Yeah, yeah. Because if yeah. they get one client to your 15, they're making more money than you are. Yeah, like, let me just give you, I'll give you an example. Like, we, we invest a lot of money for people. We, I, we manage hundreds of millions of dollars. And every month, I mean, millions of dollars of cash flow are coming in, okay, like to our firm that we're investing for people. If I were to take that money and shift it towards whole life insurance or annuities, I would like 10X my revenue. Like Forever 10X. though, it's a perpetuity. 
<laughs> until people figured it out and then my business would implode. So, but the difference is right now, like we, I, we're building a platform that is that other financial advisors want to use. I get called once a week right now from another financial planner in another industry saying the software you've built, the fee only platform you've built, the service delivery model you're using. I need something cause my business is going away and I got to find a way to add value again. Like it, there's upside in it for doing the right thing, but it takes 10 plus years for it to pay off. And like a normal dentist, you know, you don't get to make money your first year and uh, kill it and you have to take out some debt. And when I started my business, I had to go borrow 200,000 plus just to like operate for, and I, I didn't have any revenue. Like I didn't buy, I was a scratch start, you know? And I, that's just what you have to do when you build a real asset. Like you have to borrow money to start it. No one's yep. going to like give it to you unless you're this broker dealer and they subsidize the fact that these guys are unwilling to be entrepreneurs. They're unwilling to take risk. They just want to go sell one person and get paid a hundred grand. So the broker dealer fronts the whole commission. They hide it from the client. And then you have a business, a, a, you have a guy that can say he owns his own business, but the only person that, really paid for that was the client who got hosed. And it's, it's the, it's the most bothering thing to me. And I just it bothers me so much. I'm glad we got to take 15 minutes on it, but, but by the way, there's face, there's like this Facebook uh, chat room. Um, it's by Sunny. Uh, it's the dental investment uh, chat on Facebook. I I'm seeing that it's probably about 20 insurance brokers and they just comment. I'm, and and Samir Puri is a big believer in like this um, transparency and finances. So he's always chiming in. But we're always trying to comment like, our, you know, the like whole life is actually a really good part of your portfolio. And I'm and always like, hey, are you a dentist? Well, no, but I'm married to one. Are you a broker? Not really. So they, they're very cryptic and they, they, get to, yeah. they get to exist in a very fine gray area. And it reminds yeah. me of that Upton Sinclair quote. I, I'm sure you guys know it. It says, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah. So these so people true, don't man. go to bed thinking that they're bad people because right. everybody's doing it. And there's something in the financial world called the suitability standard. Yeah. So as long as you're not screwing people, pardon the French, worse than anybody else, it's not really that bad. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the suitability standard, another way that I like to say it, that I think it just adds to what you're saying is, as long as they signed off on it in a 50 page legal disclosure that they couldn't understand, yeah. then, then it's suitable. <laughs> but and everybody's it, doing it. Everybody's, everybody's doing, it. doing it. Yeah. I mean, I was told that, I, I mean, I started in the commission based industry. I started my career at Northwestern Mutual thinking I was going to be a financial advisor. I was there from 2003 for, almost two years, a little over, probably a little over two years. And it was 2003 to 2005. There was no like talk of fee only and what was the industry was changing. Um, and it was really hard for me to leave. I left, I only sold term insurance and disability because I couldn't mentally like make sense of whole life ever. And I realized after a couple of years that I really wasn't learning anything about money. I, I just wasn't learning anything about investing. I wasn't learning anything about um, securities and finance generally. And I mean, this, the more education you get formal education in finance, which I, I'm not the most educated person, but I, I do have a master's degree in finance and I'm a CFP and I've got a few other credentials. 
the more you learn about finance, the more you'll realize how crazy that, that model is. It's just most of the people that are in that model have an undergrad in poli sci and then they're done, you know, and it's, they just never really learn about money. So anyway, I'm done on my rant. I've definitely offended like 90% of my, no, well, it's okay. We, we, we've been down this path before because <laughs> we, we've used me as an example of like what not to do in terms oh, of me more, bro. I'm, right. I'm, I, I think I have like still currently I'm in the, in the process Reese, of, of unraveling. And it's like, I think I have like five plans. Uh, well, you're smart, dude. I mean, you're not doing it at age 61 where most people are. So you're getting ahead of the curve. So let's, let, let's talk about that for a second. So let's say someone d- like this leads me into another question that I kind of want to talk to you about is, is you get, you kind of found money, right? Uh-huh. So now where is the best place to invest that money? Is it a pay down debt or B deploy back into my business or C look for alternative investment um, or D all the above or D all the above. This is, this is going to be a generic, a little bit of a generic answer that doesn't apply to everyone, but I think it applies to 90% of people, okay? Like this applies to 90% of people, which is the first place the money should go is into the practice. The day one, like the, the, the first thing that should I happen. like this guy, Craig. Uh, no, I like Reese the minute we went online. Uh, um, <laughs> Reese, you're my boy. You're my Reese. boy, Lou. We, we speak of the okay so I, I cut you off but that's okay I, yes. I, I really appreciate that you guys are awfully complimentary and i, I don't get this very no we are not no, because we, we we're hard judging i feel your sincerity your honesty in your heart and to go through and do what you do is hard and it's respectable because there's an easy button for you to push and it violates your rules and beliefs and that speaks to me more than anything else so that's why i just love thanks it. craig but i would say the first thing that people need to do is realize that you in dentistry, I mean, you have one of the best entrepreneurial opportunities that that anyone who went to get a technical degree will ever have, right? I mean, dentistry is is a craft. It's a beautiful career. It's one of the best jobs in the country. Um, U.S. News and World Report just ranked it number one and number two, like specialists and GPs, like in all jobs in the country. It's also one of the highest earning jobs. I would say it's the highest earning job on average, even though anesthesia and sometimes surgery makes it up higher on lists. It's because those jobs get W-2s for their entire income and dentists get most of their income from profits out of the the, the corp or LLC. And those profits never show up on the national income studies. The only thing that the national income studies track are people's salaries. And you guys know as well as anyone that you don't pay your salary, you want your salary as low as possible so that you don't pay as much payroll tax. Right. That's an aside, but like the career of dentistry is like amazing. And the first place. And a huge barrier. You know, one thing I always talk to dentists about is like, look, we have a huge, I agree with everything you just said, but we have a huge barrier to entry, meaning that like anyone can open up a restaurant, a sandwich shop, you know, a clothing store. But really, I mean, yes, there's DSOs and I know we've gotten around that, but really to compete in the dental space, you have to be a dentist. Yeah, you're right. So it's a huge, it's barrier, a huge preferential, barrier. preferential advantage and a barrier to entry. And that's why I love it. And you say, kind of put it back in your, in your office, but let's assume that you are good to go. You've got the office of your dreams. You don't have the shag carpet. You've got great equipment. You've got you, your team is fully, you've invested fully in your team. Um, you're, you're, I would say you're defining that by you're at least running a 20% operating margin yep. um, beyond your production Hopefully okay. a little bit more. You yep. know? 
Okay, so let's say that that's going back to my original question. All right, so let's say you're good to go in the practice. Like the practice doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be invested in and and okay. And said dentist loves 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 where he is. Yeah. Now where you at that point? uh, You, I would say that there's only four places your money can go. It can go in building businesses, which is a dental practice. It can go in liquid assets uh, that are either cash or after-tax investments that you can get easy access to. It can go into retirement plans like 401ks, defined benefit plans, and, and IRAs, or it can go into real estate. So it can, it can go into businesses, liquidity, uh, qualified plans, or real estate. And in my mind, you, you start with the practice because early on in your career, you have all this, you, you start with the practice, then you go to liquidity, okay? Then you go to liquid assets. Liquid assets meaning I want you to have at least six to 12 months, I would say minimum six months in personal living expenses in your checking account. Um, anything above six months should be invested really conservatively up until you have a 12 month, uh, reserve total. And then, uh, and then in the practice have two months worth of overhead. Wait, 12 month reserve total. Go into detail. What are you talking six. about? So six. 12, so 12 month reserve total, six of that could be invested and six of it's liquid in cash. What is the 12 month reserve specifically? Of personal living expenses. The average dentist, let's say spends 15 grand a month. I mean, you're going to need you know, 90 grand worth of liquidity before you're safe personally. Okay. I I don't want to see someone say, I've got 20 grand in the bank. I'm good because we're, you know, it's to be a serious investor. You have to start taking some risk. And in order to take risk, you have to be liquid. Mm -hmm. Like it's the only way you can like get to the point to where you're willing to take risk um, with your money. And so for me, I, I, liquid investments to me are cash and after-tax investments in anything that is not a business or real estate. Mm-hmm. So it could be a mutual fund. It, it could be an ETF. Um, that includes whole life insurance, which we just said we don't like. It's not very liquid, but it is accessible at a very low rate of return and a high surrender penalty. It is liquid. Um, anything that you can get at that's not tied up till age 59 I like investing my after-tax money a little bit more conservatively than my pre-tax money, okay? So I, I like municipal bonds. I like municipal bond funds that are specific to the state you live in. Um, I love corporate bonds. Um, I like being able to depend on my liquidity. Like it lets me take risk in my business and it lets me take risk in my 401k and IRAs. Um, I'm not gonna touch my 401k and my defined benefit plan uh, retirement plan contributions until I've got at least that one year worth of personal liquidity invested. And then I'll start thinking about retirement plan contributions. Love that. that that's great advice. Craig, let me, let me have one more question on, on this because it's something me personally, I, I question. So some people, let's just say like a Dave Ramsey kind of advice, right? So bear with me on that. I know it doesn't apply to dentists, but a lot of these talking heads will say debt, pay down debt, pay down debt. And I personally don't agree with that, especially given that most of the debt that we've acquired in our, you know, lifetimes has been, has been pretty cheap interest rates, right? It's been cheap money. So I think it's an arbitrage of, of opportunity to be able to, like I've been advised by my current advisors to, look, your debt is, is actually great debt. And I would not pay this down quickly because you can deploy this much better in, in other environments. Do you, do you ascribe to that? Do you believe in that methodology? Like when would you say that paying down debt is a good idea versus? Great. That's a great question. And it's one of the more common ones I get um, is like 
do I pay down the debt or do I invest the money? And I, to me, there's, I have, I came up with this system of like 12 indicators. I got a trademark for it and I'm building software around it right now. These 12 indicators are the things that govern all the advice I would give someone. So if someone came to me and they said, I have a debt to income ratio that's 41%, I would say, I don't care what your interest rate is. Like we just can't have that much debt relative mm -hmm. to your income or you're going to always feel like life's a drag. It's just going to feel tight, uncomfortable. Vacations are going to be like a drag. If you're at a, if you're home mortgage alone, you can qualify for 42% DTI on your house alone. Like if that's where your home mortgage is sitting at relative to your income, like you're, you're just, you're never going to make any financial progress. So we either have to sell the house. Because your house poor, house. right? Yeah. You know, and the same thing is with the practice. Like you might have $800,000 of practice debt that you're trying to amortize over five years. If that forces your DTI to be in the like high 50s, like we just can't pay debt down that fast. Um, the, the indicator I use is I look at a calendar on a calendar year basis. Do you have more than 20% of your gross income left over? Like including all of your say, like let's say that, that, that's including your savings. That's including your 401k contributions. It's including like money. Totally discretionary up. money. You're saying. Yeah. If, if 20% or more is completely discretionary after taxes, after debt, after living expenses, then you're, you're probably like at a healthy debt to income ratio. Like you're probably a fine there and, and any, anything above 20% savings, um, maybe anything above 25, you could for sure throw at debt, like for sure throw that at debt. But if you're not accumulating 20 to 25% liquidity every year, I don't think you've really earned the, the luxury to reduce your debt on an accelerated basis. We're going to have to like either refinance your debt and stretch out the terms, or we're going to have to use all of our discretionary to eliminate some of the debts so that our cash flow can get in a healthy place. You're, right. You know, if you're so making, is, that, is a lot of this based on a cash flow, like a cash flow index? Yes. Like, okay. So you're, you're, you can only, your, your money can only go to four places. Um, you, you, we talked about those four buckets of investments. That's where your assets can build, but your income can only go to savings, spending, debt, and taxes. That's it. So it can only go to one of those four places and the ratio of your income mix, we call it income utilization, like that dictates what you can do. So if your savings rate's 35%, I'm going to be saying like, holy cow, like you're, you're either making like $1.5 million and crushing it and you just have that much left over or you're like way like cramping your lifestyle and yeah. not any fun like using one one yeah scrimping on the toilet paper and like literally yeah. like coupon cutting and everywhere yeah. you go and yeah like that as a high a savings rate in the high 30s is like either you're killing it and you've gotten to the point to where you're, you're, you're spending like you're just making so much that your savings rate can naturally get that high mm -hmm. or, or you're you're just cutting every lifestyle expense out and so i like to look at people's income and their asset mix and the asset question is the one you asked earlier, and, and that's where should I put the money? I would say it's practice, then liquidity, then it's qualified plans, then real estate.
Hey everybody, it's Dr. Craig Spodak from the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and I am super fired up to talk to you guys about our summit happening October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. This is the opportunity to learn everything we've accumulated over the last 20 years of dentistry and business management. We're leaving it all on the table. There's nothing to sign up for afterwards. This is just two days of intense learning and mastermind sessions. We strongly encourage you to bring someone in your office that's a stakeholder, not just an employee, but someone that's actually following you and treats your business as their own. Because if you come back from this thing all fired up and you don't have your first follower or someone to help implement, it's gonna be very difficult. So once again, October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. Registration is filling up very, very quickly and the tickets are almost sold out. So go to bulletproofdentalpractice.com forward slash summit and reserve your spot today. See you soon, people. About uh, we have a lot of list, you know, a lot of listenership who who has student loans. You know, they're yeah. early on into their career. What do you think about? That? And obviously, I don't, I don't even know what you know. It varies by the interest rate. I get that in the secure yeah. kind of situation. But what what do you advise on that? Um, paying that down, not to mention just psychologically, uh, psychologically liberating. But what do you recommend on on paying that down? Well, if somebody's got five hundred thousand plus in student loans and they still don't know exactly what they want to do. Like, are you going to be an associate? Are you going to own a practice? Where's the location? You know, what, what type of practice are you going to want to have? Like, it's more important that you get into the right working situation than it Mm -hmm. is to pay down your student loan debt. I mean, as you guys know, it's like, I mean, you just, you just don't make a lot of progress until your practice is really kicking, you know? Yeah. Someone asked me, they're like, what's the fastest way to pay down your student debt? And I said, make a shit ton of money. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I always tell, that's why I say put the money in the practice first, because there's this like, we call it a lifetime earnings estimate that we make. We just try to look at when you started and what age you are today and how much money you've made since the point you started. And that's how we grade how efficient you got the practice up and running. (laughs) Like if you, if you, if it took you like seven years to go from you know, 300,000 to 600,000 of collections, like you're just killing your opportunity in dentistry. Mm -hmm. You just need to go be an associate. Okay. Like it's not, there's something about your personality that is not really business oriented. Right. And so go, it's fine to be an associate. Like there are many days where I wish I was not a business owner. Heck yeah. Oh man. I know it. And that's a great, that's a great thing you bring up is, is I think there's a, a self-awareness is missing in a lot in dentistry. Like, you know, from, from everything from our, sometimes our consultations with patients lacking some self-awareness to actually just recognizing that like, Hey, it's okay to be an associate and be a kick-ass associate. I'll have probably make more money, totally. have less, have like, less worry. Like dude, we have associates that are crushing it. With crushing like, it. Trust and me, Pete and I do too. I've got associates making almost a million dollars a year. <laughs> Yeah. It's like they're, they're, and they're, a lot of them are contractors, which means that they can like build retirement plans that exclude everyone. I know they can contribute more than we can. Yeah. They're putting, I have clients that are associates that are putting almost 300,000 away tax deductible into a retirement account with no match to anyone. Yeah. You you and I cannot do that. We cannot do that. Hey, I I know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's now, now, if you've got 10 staff, if you've got 12 staff in one to two locations and the demographics are right, 
you might be able to get away that much, but you're still going to have to give away 20 grand. You'll have to give away 22,000. You know, you'll have to give away 10% of the total contribution, right? But, and, and a lot of dentists don't even get to that point. They always just do a 401k and they never advance their qualified plan to mm-hmm. something that's more efficient. And they'll go, they'll do like one test with their financial advisor and he'll be like, I don't know, your demographics don't really make sense. And then they'll just quit and not try. But it's, it's more, it is an art to get defined benefit plan testing to, to, to maximize tax deductions for dentists. Like it's not a, there's not like a formula that one person has and everyone has the same formula. It's you, you go ask five actuaries, run a test. Here's my census and tell me what I can put away. You're going to get five different answers. And so you dentists don't realize that once it gets past the 401k, it's, it's not like a, it's not an exact science that one person will be able to say, uh, this is your outcome of your retirement plan match. You know, so. it's funny. It's, I'm glad you're bringing that up actually, because I think there's this myth that to get to the upper levels of what a dentist could make as an income, you have to be an owner. And that mm-hmm. Craig has just dispelled that myth. I mean, you've dispelled yeah. it, you know, it's so it's, I think that there's somewhat of a, um, I don't know, like you don't see associates wearing the badge of honor as proudly as I'm an owner with the, with the practice of this top line. You know, you see like I'm an associate kind of thing. Like, you know, yeah. you don't see it. And it should be like, I'm a, I'm a rock star associate, like, you know, and, and I'm living my life, making a, you know, I'm kick ass, you know, so yeah. I, I guess what I'm just, I just want to hear that the, the tone is um, everyone thinks the pathway to, to this great income and great lifestyle is through ownership. And, and sometimes yeah. it's quite the contrary. Yeah. Like in, in my experience, I like to look at, yeah, I like to look at net worth growth, just Mm -hmm. net worth growth total. We have like a a dashboard that connects business debt, business valuation, real estate holdings, all their personal and practice checking accounts. We calculate net worth really accurately for all of our clients every day. It gets updated and um, in our dashboard. And, and I, I can tell you that, that there is a correlation between income and ownership. Like there is a correlation, you know, that owners typically make more. Um, But I will say that that's only because 30% of owners manage their practice really, really, really well, and they kill it. And then 70% of owners like really struggle, like to the point to where it's like, it's probably a wash at whether they should have been an owner or not. Really? And I'm not saying you should be not be an owner. I'm just saying the bulk of owners are making, that's why DSOs, like that's why corporate dentistry is like working yeah. because they're literally able, to, they're making more money as an associate than they could if they were trying to be an owner. Well, um, also let's just take into consideration that to be an owner dentist, if you are working for free, producing dentistry for free, meaning there's no attributable line on your P&L to your salary, it's really hard to go out of business. Yeah. You be a total screw up and not go out of business. You're not. Yeah, there's, no, there's no accountability to whether, you, whether you're making enough to justify it or not. You're just always going to be in business. Like, Is it a job or a business, right? Like yeah. you're, you know, so that's, I think that's what you're saying, right, Craig? Like essentially, you're, you, if you back out what you would have made an associate, sometimes it's less than what you what an associate would have made yeah. as a business owner, and that's you know that's a little depressing sometimes when you're on. I mean, hey, I've been in that situation in times. Oh yeah, like, depending on the, so, the the cycle of your business, we're all in that situation, right? Yeah, you and know? you ha- as a business owner, you have to pass through that moment when you're like, 
I'm making less than I could as an associate. Like you have to pass through that point mm -hmm. because your first associate hire, if you're smart, will cut your income. Like yep. it will make you make less 100%. money. You can't make more when you hire that first person. Yes. 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 Thank God but, you're saying this stuff. That's, but, this is important. But yeah. also growth cycle. So you open up another office or redo your office, you will make less again than your associate. Yeah. So like if you want to do it, like you have one or two associates, you want to dream to build a bigger facility, you want to triple the size of your facility, you're going to go through a couple of years where you're making less than your less associate. Less money. You, that's, and that's another myth. I've got that yeah. literally hiring an associate, you'll quote unquote make more money. No, you'll actually take a pay cut for a little while. Yeah, you're now, now you're from a successful you're, standpoint. You're exactly right. And you're, but your personal wealth will go up you, right. and, and it's because the value of the asset that you're building will increase. So yes. you're not getting the cash flow, but this asset gets bigger, but right. that asset is not guaranteed to not ever. guaranteed. And you're holding the bag. If the economy fail, like you're the yeah. one holding the bag. Yeah. And, and, and like, talking about this all the time, man, all the time. we talk the, about thing, the thing that I think is most insightful is to look at where, Look at where you go if you take, let's say you go past this two to four location and you're really going to be this like 20 to 30 location DSO. At mm. some point, okay, you will be given a salary, okay, in exchange for stock in the, in the enterprise. You don't even get to work on production at some point. Like it's now, you go from making seven figures to where you get to make 250 again and right. it's a fixed income. But you get all of this, you get this asset, this unrealized. You mean in a liquidity event and selling your company, you're saying, right? Well, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, um, you will have to give up your, you'll still have ownership, obviously, of a large portion. But if you have a liquidity event, it'll come at the cost of a salary or some kind of reduction in your pay to, to, to put you in a management position. For them to pay for that asset they for gave them you. For them to pay for the asset they gave you. <laughs> there's, no, there's no winning. Now, no, there is a huge win. Okay. But it, it is a lot harder. And I've been through this like personally, and I've had to give up my production based pay in exchange for giving up ownership in my asset to investors who provide me with a lot of liquidity and a lot of growth capital. And I know how it feels like, and it's a hard decision. It's mm -hmm. multiple years of thinking about that. And, but there, it, it does pay off. Like you get a capital gains transaction that gives you a lot of liquidity. It's life-changing money. I mean, if you get a million dollars handed to you after taxes, when you're in your thirties, that's worth so much more mm -hmm. than if you're in your sixties and they hand that money to you. When you're in your sixties, it's like my life, like the, like the most like eventful opportunistic part of my life has as, as past, right? I mean, I'm just saying a dollar in my 30s to me, I value much more than a dollar in my 60s just from a lifestyle perspective. Like I, I need the money now so I can experience life the way I want to as opposed to when I'm 70. What is that called? That, what you're describing? Like, time value, time value time of money. Value. Yeah, time well, value. That, that it, it, time value of money, I just want to be clear. Time value of money to me is the, the like, money grows and becomes worth less over time. I'm just saying like, Five bucks today when I'm making a hundred grand means a lot more to me than five bucks will mean when I'm sure you know, 10 years from now when I'm like making more and I, my life is better and I have more wealth. It's just that I care less about money the older I get because the, the, the demands on my spending are less. And mm -hmm. so, 
I'm just saying it's worth it. It's totally worth it. I don't want to discourage anyone, but it's also like, it's not as, um, you work way more hours. It's much less attractive than people think the, the agony, the pain, the stress of growing an enterprise. Like it's, there are many times where you just wish you weren't doing it. You question whether it's valuable, uh, whether it's all been worth all the effort. And I just think it's important to know that as an associate, like, and as an owner that if you're, if you're the, you, it's something bigger that's got to drive you to push through that. And it's not really the money that's driving you. It's like, you just want to take your ideas and see them come to fruition. Yeah. It's that, vision. That, it's that vision. drives you more than the money. And if that isn't something that's motivating to you and you literally are like motivated at the idea of like, I could be at 33 or 35% of production instead of 30 and you're doing a financial analysis on your income that makes you like feel motivated to get a little higher percentage of production in my opinion, you should just be, uh, you should be an associate if that's really motivating to you because you, 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 the things that drive owners, like they're not always financial. So that literally gave me, you need a big megaphone, my friend. I mean, honestly, that gave me kind of chills because you're right. It's not, if if building an empire or big office or whatever, if you're, if you're only driven by money and not the purpose, I know this sounds a little woo woo, but like, that is not sustainable and you will wear yeah. out. And you Yeah, well, that, that was my vision, Peter. I said like, you know, I consciously said, said to myself, would I rather express my vision and make less money? Or money was not the main motivator by any no. stretch. It was never yeah. the main motivator for me. And um, I think that it's, it's really important to know thyself, you know, as a Shakespeare. Self-awareness thing we're talking about, right? You got to be aware. You got to know what you're, what, and and there's, there's so many traps that are specific and endemic to dentistry (laughs) that I think bear some mention. Um, You know, we have this problem in that any bank will give us like 110% financing on anything. We also tend to do better every year. So we, as, I mean, what's the ADA statistic about what percentage of dentists can retire at 65? It's like, well, the, the average dentist is 69 right now. That's the average age. But I, but I find myself like, even though I know this, you know, viscerally, I find myself making decisions that are not consistent with these statistics because yeah. we're, I'm spending more every year. And if you, if you make more every year, but you're making, let's say, 5 or 10% more every year, but you're spending 11 or 16% more per year, that's a problem. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, like look at Warren Buffett driving the same car. Look at how dentists are. We spend so much as a, as a, as a, as a profession. Well, and I, I, don't, I think it's how you earn it, Craig. Like most people um, get quarterly bonuses and a lower salary. Um, or they get some kind of like annual bonus and a lower salary. I mean, dentists really do have the same amount of income almost every month, and that's pretty unusual. But I think it's also a good problem because what's the retirement? What's the statistic on retirement to death in dentistry? Yeah. What? It's like eleven months. Someone told me that like I need to. I need to. That's that's a little bit of a of a of a. That's a research project. I know. I was gonna say I need to back that up with some data, but I literally remember hearing that in someone. Um, that's not uncommon though outside of dentistry. Yeah, like you. you, yeah. you outside so, of dentistry, there's a high correlation to death and retirement, and it. Yeah. And so why I, why creates why retire from something like? Well, you know, here's the trying, problem, like. We got to stop talking about retirement. Like, exactly. That's not my point. The idea, right, is, and what you're saying, Peter, is like, in my, what I do is I have the statistic we measure called total term. 
and it just tells me if work is optional for someone yet. Like is when does work become optional for someone? That's what total term tells me. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like you have to have a net worth that's about 30 times your annual spending. At the point you have a net worth that's 30 times your annual spending, then mathematically you are independently wealthy. Like you're financially independent. Nice. Okay? And okay. so that's the, if you're at 20 times your annual spending, you're probably not, you're not, you're not financially independent in any <laughs> circumstance, unless you're like 80. You know, I mean, you, you, you have to, the earlier you want financial independence to occur, the closer you need to be to that 30 multiple. And there's a lot of math behind it. Um, but like when work is optional, you can keep working. Like it's fun to work when work is optional. Dentistry is a lot more fun when you don't have to produce it. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and I just say the, the motivation for me to get financially independent at an early age is like, at least this has been my experience. The more liquid I get, and the more my business grows and the more my net worth increases, the less stress I feel at work. Yeah. I just don't care anymore. And, and the like, more freedom you have. Yeah, and you got to get money out of that asset, though, to feel that way. Mm-hmm. That's why associates can feel so good is most of them have more liquidity than the owners do. And, and, and so you have to harvest the asset along the way in order for you to really feel like, you're making financial progress because you'll crash in your fifties. I mean, it's just like you build this asset and if you never harvest it and you never get liquid you, and you can't take four decent vacations a year and like just have some flexibility. I mean, it, it, it's just too big of a grind. And so that's why like, I don't like obsessing over debt reduction because debt reduction does not help me feel financially independent. It just makes me feel like I've got less debt and those are very different to me. Um, liquidity gives me financial freedom and debt just makes me feel like I'm get, having less debt. Like I, if I take a hundred grand and put it in an investment account and grow it at 5% a year, but I could have access to it at any time I could borrow against it and avoid capital gains tax. I could just watch it grow. I can earn the interest or I could take that same hundred grand and pay off an $800,000 loan down to 700. I feel like zero financial like relief from paying down the debt, but I have a massive financial relief from the liquidity. Well, a lot of people are that way. They just well, don't. Let's just talk about, let's just talk about that debt. So if you have, you know, debt on your practice and it's at, let's say 4%, what's the effective cost of that debt? It's probably After, like 2.5, yeah, 2.6. Exactly. And you know, the payment is fixed. So the time, you know, getting to the proper term, the time value of money, that same $5,000 a month payment in 10 years is far less. That's yeah. what so, I'm saying. It's the biggest arbitrage of our career. Right. Yeah. So, so I know like that- Businesses don't, if you've got a business, you don't just try to pay down the debt like as your first goal. Like no business does that. If anything, they continue to lever and lever and lever the business. And that's not, a, that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Wachovia, like there's a lot of problems that come from that. But in a small business environment, you just have to look at like, are you, are you trying to build a $10 million practice? Are you trying to build an eight, a six, a five? Like if you spend a hundred grand a year or 10, let's say you spend 10 grand a month, you don't need more than four to 5 million bucks to be financially independent. So we only need an asset. Like we don't need to build an asset that's worth more than four or 5 million. Mm. If, if, if you don't want to, like, like I found at least for me, like everyone has to get to a point where they say like, I, you start with like what you spend, say like I spend 20 grand a month. That's my number. Like I, I need that to feel like life is good. Or I'm at 15. 
or I spend 25 a month. I got clients that spend a hundred thousand dollars a month and that's crazy to me, but like that's their definition of like normal lifestyle. And they, they just have three country club memberships, five houses, and they do a ton of travel and they're way more successful financially than I am. You know, right. that's what dri- they, they're driven like more to hit a certain number. Yeah. It's a scorecard for them. Right? Yeah. And, but most of us are like working past our number. Like we're, we're, we don't know what our number is because we don't track our spending. And you can't just like cut your spending arbitrarily. Like it's like diet. It's like anything that's like systemic to you. Like you spend the way you spend, Peter, because that's like how you like to live, right? Right. And I, you're, I'm not going to change it just because we're like got to cut back. It's like, dude, but I just don't eat at Sizzler. Like I like this kind of steak. And some people are like, I love Sizzler. And like, well, the guy that loves Sizzler that is different than, than me and so he doesn't need as much on a monthly basis. But one guy needs three million, one guy needs four million, one guy needs five million, one guy needs six. But we typically either underaccumulate or we overaccumulate. But we're rarely accumulating to the right number because money's an emotional thing. It's not logical. And there's a book um, which I got some of the cliff notes on. It's like you don't trump the money game. You don't win money. You don't win the money game. Money. You know, you, you can do whatever you, for many people who, who just, who are, you know, there's a difference between achieving to be happy and happily achieving. My dad told me at 65 that at 68, he's going to retire. So knock on wood, he's 77, he's working. And you know, that statistic you said about death and retirement, retirement is a broken industrial age concept that has no place in modern world. It was, it was designed by the German chancellor at the turn of the century because people, the workforce was getting too expensive because there was too many senior people. So they instituted a government policy to force people into retirement so they could pay lower wage younger people. Yeah. But, so this whole idea that we're going to ultimately be free and the freedom is in the fact that as long as you're loving what you do and you're not oppressed by it, that is freedom. Yeah. And for those that are right. listening that make a hundred grand a year, or have 300 grand saved up, guess what? You can retire too. You just yeah. might have to move to Phuket or, you know, or uh, Vietnam, but you can retire. Yeah. You can, yeah. You, can it's, it's right just, you have to have your spending be, a, your, your wealth has to be a 30 multiple of your spending. So you gotta right. adjust your spending back. Right, so it's just, it's just like, what do you want out of life and what are your rules and beliefs? And you can actually retire. Even if you have 300 grand, you can retire. Yeah. You just have to, move I, you're, to hitting, you're hitting something that's important to me. I, I just want to, I know we're running out of time today, but if I could like, if people could remember like one thing that I think dentists don't end up doing is I don't think they invest their liquid assets aggressively enough. Okay. I don't think that the, the average dentist is, they're too conservative with their liquid assets and, and that costs them millions of dollars over a 25 year career. My point is if you're not going to invest in building a big DSO, if you're not going to have multiple locations and you're just going to be a one to two to three location doctor, you need to get really serious about how you're going to invest your liquidity because that's going to be the, the variable in whether you can make work optional at an early age because oh you, you, you can't just sit on your cash. You can't just like hope that 4% is enough. Like liquid investment accounts, like just the average, like, academic average there's a, a nobel prize one on this called the three factor model all right the three factor model was designed by a guy named eugene fama of the university of chicago kenneth french from dartmouth and basically what they decided was that 
investments grow like more than the average because of three things. They're either really small companies or they're uh, Warren Buffett type companies that are what are called high uh, book to value, book to market, they're value stocks. So value companies grow more than growth companies. Like Facebook is not as good of an investment long-term as like blockbuster video, for example. I'm giving you two big extremes. Like if you buy a bunch of blockbuster videos that you know are like about to go away because they're an imploding business model, those will have a higher return over 10 years than than 100 Facebooks will uh, if you just average them all together. Not like one, not comparing Facebook and Blockbuster, but saying those types of, of companies. So the small companies do better than the big ones. The value ones do better than the growth ones. And the, the high quality and profitable companies um, do better than the ones that don't have profitability. Those, if you were just to concentrate your portfolio in that kind of an index and just say, look, I know that this is going to be a lot of up and down movement, but that is going to like that, that index, that can index constructed that way of like all of the stocks in the whole world that match that criteria, not picking anyone, just those criteria, that Nobel prize, what it was trying to prove was that you're going to, there's, these are multiple percentage points of additional return, but they come with volatility. Like they Mm -hmm. come with more up and down movement, but most dentists, like, they have these portfolios that are like mixes between stocks and bonds, right? It's like, I got these bonds, I got my stocks and together when I combine them, it makes me feel like it's safer. But really inside of that account, there's just aggressive stuff that grows a lot and there's stuff that doesn't grow a lot. And by mixing them together, it's not like making it better. It's just, it's just hiding the truth from you. And the truth is like you have some safe stuff and you have some growthy stuff. So you need to have enough safe stuff to feel confident that you can take risk. But like a person who aggressively invests their liquid capital, I mean, they're going to have a three to four to five percentage point additional lifetime return over someone who's more conservative. And that's your opportunity for most average dentists. Like you can, you can have millions of dollars if you can just stomach the volatility that naturally will be there in the marketplace. You can't time the market. You can't get in and out of it. There's no way to predict the future, but you can have enough liquidity to where you're like, Hey, I've got a million bucks here. I don't care if it drops to 600 because I know if I had 10 practices, there's a chance they could go down 30% in collections too. Like that's just the nature of business ownership. That's just the nature of owning equity. And I feel like by doing, by, by committing to a, like a more, academic, like more, a slightly more aggressive uh, investment policy than you would do on your own. Your financial advisor is really doing you a favor if he can help you stick with that. And he'll know, like he'll know when he's pushed you too far and when he's not, you know, giving you your, your fear, like enough credibility or enough voice. But I, I just feel like most dentists miss out on 2 million plus in returns that they could have gotten because they're too timid when it comes to liquid investments in the market and the markets a more predictable return for liquidity than paying down debt. It's a more predictable return and letting it sit in cash, paying off your own house. Um, I don't want to say that to encourage people to go and just like do this without any professional, like fee only financial advisor talk. You just at least have someone that you can ref talk to like, talk to a Craig, talk to a Peter, someone else who maybe is into this stuff and go, 
Am I thinking the right way? But I'm worried that like dentists, they're not taking the risk of like going and building a big enterprise in most cases. So they're building this liquidity, but then they're also really not investing it in a way that gets them a good return because they're so worried about it going down. Like, like any business would always only go up, you know? So I'll let you guys ask a question or two about that. I, I got, I got, got something. We got to wrap, but because we're getting to be to the point. Ooh, where we got to go. Yeah, well, you know, Pete, I don't know if you feel the same way about Reese. This has been so amazing. Um, I would love to do a part two. I, and we've never, by the way, Reese, that's never been said on this podcast. You're our first part two. <laughs> well, that's, that's a huge honor. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. it, guys. But I love what you said, by the way. There's a couple takeaways um, that I just heard, and it's really important. I want to I reiterate. These, these market gurus, if your CFP financial advisor is telling you, hey, we've had eight years of a bull market. I want to put you in cash right now because we're due for a correction. Like he's some sort of freaking Houdini. But he doesn't know. Run. Run from that yeah. guy. Yeah. So when your CFP or market per, uh, advisor is telling you, we're going to like put our money on the sidelines right now, that goes against all conventional logic. You cannot time the market. Mm -hmm, but yeah. if you want to go into the market, the best time is today. Always. Even yeah. if you invested the day before the largest crashes ever. You were still using good logic when you did that. And I'd re I respect the person that uses that logic as opposed to the person that thinks that they were a hero or a genius for missing out on some crash like yeah they are not they're not being honest and statistically they're they're the the, the market goes up on average like three out of four days so right. like you just have to be exposed to that and but, have but the, even if even if you bought i remember hearing something from a, a well-known financial guy he's like even if you bought the day before the four worst crashes and yeah. left it in there over 15 years. You're up significantly more than if you entered it random at any point yeah. you know, later on. So you got to get in. But just to quantify your comment that most dentists are too conservative, what are their, the conservative dentist, what is his annualized return over the last 10 years that you think he left money on the table? So give me a number. You're saying that he didn't beat the S&P on yeah, average? By, by be well underperformed the S&P. So it would have been better off to just dump everything in an index fund, an ETF, and, and leave it alone than did what he then do what he did. Well, and I would say the S and P is not the definition of what I was saying would be aggressive enough. But the S and P is all stocks. It's just the 500 largest in the U.S. It doesn't capitalize on those three factors I was talking about earlier. Um, capitalize on those three factors would would increase your return by uh, several percentage points, maybe as high as 13 percent, depending on what the actual next 20 years look like. I mean, we just know that these attributes of stocks are the reasons that um, they're the most volatile attributes. They're the smaller companies always grow more than the big ones. The cheap stocks always grow more than the expensive ones. That's the value and growth. And then ones that are profitable, that's always a better sign long term than ones that are never driving a profit. And mm -hmm. so, and anyway, so, so just to four to five points. Just to, minimum. just to quantify it, you're saying that doctors, mostly the portfolios that you see that you think people are leaving money on the table, they're underperforming even the S&P. Oh, by, by four and a half to 5% a year. Yeah. Wow. And by the way, Warren Buffett does have that bet that was conclusive over 10 years. He challenged like the top hedge fund managers, these, like, these iconic investors, just to beat the S&P over 10 years and no one could do it. It's really, really, really hard. I would say... That there's a place for those iconic investors, 
it's just not in the retail market where we're investing five grand a month. Right. Those investors are trying to get um, return patterns that are more stable or more narrow or tighter. They're just trying to do something different with their money, typically for a pension fund or some giant like school district or something. They have different goals than a retail person. So indexing is always a better approach, always a better approach for a retail individual. Uh, the more sophisticated you get, like if you have more than $10 million, maybe even more than seven or eight, I'd say there's a place for some of these other, other things. We won't talk about alternatives today because we don't have time, but um, there's, a, there's a place for alternative investings, private equity, venture capital, but it does not apply until you have that 30 TT score we talked about. The day that you're there, there's plenty of conversation to talk about what's next. Cool. Well, I mean, on part two, if I have my wish list, I want to jump into the um, alternative forms, uh, uh, the defined benefit stuff. I'd love to talk about that stuff. I'd love to talk about um, what are the biggest mistakes that dentists make that delay retirement because I'd love to have that. Cool. Um, and then the habits of the wealthiest dentists. I'd love to just, I'd like to get into hmm. the behavioral stuff, the behavior, because cool. we talked to mechanics. Yeah. Mechanics are leaving, you know, but if there's behavioral stuff that we can identify with, and see what are the pitfalls. I think that would be really, really valuable. That's a, I agree with that, actually, those three. Um, Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, Thanks man, that was, that was awesome, man. Honestly, I, I came in not knowing, um, you know, we've never talked before, and I came in not knowing you. You're, you're, you have a great reputation in the industry, but, um, man, that was, that was all, all ears, and that was, uh, that was, you just delivered massive value for the listenership. So I, I, I'm, I'm really excited. Let's get, let's get number two on the books and um, continue this, man. That was awesome. Look forward to it. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to have you guys on my show here in the next few months too. I'm gonna have to. I would. I'd love to do an in person. Though. We can go on a little mountain biking tour, uh, oh, and I'll get wait. you up on a mountain bike for the first time. All right. Wait. Uh, I'll like, take you up on that for sure. Salt Lake City. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll to hey, I'll, be out, I'll be I'm out in Salt right Lake. Now. I'll be out in Salt Lake. I'm going to do a Ford Raptor off road adventure. Great. You are. Wait, yeah. Pete. I want to do that too. Can you yeah. get me invited to that? Because yeah. I got a Raptor. I want to get. Your, I'm not your assistant. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You, you do that. <laughs> No, I'm um, not asking you to to physically do it, but can't you talk to your powers that hey, you can't delegate to me? Just FYI. No, I'm asking for a favor, you jackass. I'm not saying <laughs> delegate. Like give me coffee. Uh, I, I kind of would like to go solo on this one, Greg. For once, yeah. um, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I'll be out there in, in July for that reason. So maybe I'll cool. hit you up and we'll go. Uh, right on. Take me, take me mountain hey, biking. Maybe Craig. Maybe I'll let Craig. Partake I'm, go, I'm coming too, man. I got a raptor trip. Anyway. That was awesome. Reese, again, thanks for your time, buddy. And uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast source. Check out BulletproofDentalPractice.com for video interviews and text BULLETPROOF to 345-345 to stay connected to us for special announcements. Have a great day.